to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and this is Jesus having the Apostle John transcribe words for him, quote, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I come. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let me begin this evening with just a quick profile of the city of Ephesus. Though the origins of this Hellenistic city date back to the 10th century BC, the city reached notoriety when Augustus issued a formal decree making Ephesus the capital of a region known as Asia Minor in 27 BC. Greek historian Strabo says that Ephesus was, quote, second in importance and size only to Rome. The city was so influential that Ephesus served as the lifeblood for an entire region. And in addition to boasting of an open-air theater capable of holding up to 25,000 spectators, Ephesus also possessed one of the world's great and largest libraries, making this city a center for education and learning. Beyond this, Ephesus was the location of the famous Temple of Artemis, or Diana in Roman mythology. This particular temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Because Diana was the goddess of birth, childbirth, women, the city of Ephesus was also a religious center. Aside from the grotesque practices of temple prostitution, the worship of Diana was steeped in mysticism, filled with the occult, filling this particular city, the city of Ephesus, with unspeakable immorality. And yet, while Ephesus was dark, steeped in the occult, totally pagan, in a weird twist, Ephesus proved to be fertile ground for the gospel. Though Paul visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey alongside of of a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, Acts chapter 18, Paul would return in his third missionary journey, spending three years ministering in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 records the events. Not only was a church made up mostly of Gentiles, founded and shepherded by the apostle Paul, who would teach daily, we're told, from the school of Tyrannius. But we're told in the book of Acts that the name of Jesus in Ephesus was magnified and the word of the Lord grew mightily 
and prevailed. The impact of this church was so incredible that a man by the name of Demetrius eventually stirs up a riot claiming this, that not only was their trade selling silver shrines to Diana in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana ran the risk of being despised and her magnificence destroyed. What a church, what an impact. The radical impact of the gospel working through this church in the city of Ephesus was so tangible, palpable, that it was hitting Satan in the pocketbook. Following the arrival of Paul, this radical preaching of the gospel message and the formation of this church, Ephesus and the surrounding region would never be the same. Not only did this church continue to grow, but from this church in Ephesus, 12 satellites were planted in the surrounding region. This Ephesian church was a theological titan. A very sweet moment that Paul would share with the elders of Ephesus in Miletus, Acts chapter 20. Paul would attest that, quote, he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. The folks in this church weren't noobs. They were chewing on the meat of the word, their doctrinal acumen. It was so evident, so weighty, it would be evidenced in the substance of a letter Paul would write from a Roman cell some 10 years later, the letter to the Ephesians. Beyond Paul's ministry, this church in Ephesus would be later pastored by Timothy and then the apostle John. In the case of this particular letter written by Jesus, It would come 40 years after the church was established and some 30 years after Paul wrote his epistle. It should also be noted that most scholars see the substance of Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus as also being specifically tailored to what we would call the post-apostolic church. The reality is that these Ephesian believers epitomize a larger group of people, what we would call second-generation Christians. Historically, we know that as the church began to transition away from its founding generation, several things become noteworthy. First, like the early disciples of Jesus, the generations to follow were very devoted to the things of Christ. In a Roman world that had grown very hostile to Christians, the second generation believers like the first were serious followers of Christ. They were willing and proved it, willing to live and die for the name of Jesus. Secondly, though, as demonstrated by the writings of some of the early fathers, like Clement of Rome or the Diodaci, the post-apostolic church was also, like the original, doctrinally sound. While there were heretical influences percolating around the church. During this period, this second generation, those influences were largely relegated to the fringes. You can imagine that this was largely the byproduct of the constant admonitions of men like Paul, John, and Peter, who cautioned the church to what? To guard against false teachers these men knew were coming. And yet, with all of that being said, Sadly, and rather tragically, 
According to some of the writings of the early church fathers, it was during this period, this post-apostolic period, that the church began to make a tragic and subtle turn. They were turning from the gospel of grace into legalism. Because these Ephesian Christians recognized the wicked tendencies of the world around them, they rightly feared that these negative influences of their culture might end up corroding the moral fabric and purpose of their church. They wanted to safeguard against it. So to combat it, the early church fathers began erecting moral walls around the church in order to insulate the flock from these creeping sinful influences. And while it's true that the motivation for this had been a desire to remain holy and set apart before the Lord, to be set apart for his purposes, to remain true and steadfast. The sad and unintended reality is that holiness within this second generation was no longer being seen as the result of the transformative power of God's grace, but instead was being seen as something to be achieved through personal performance and the limiting of liberty. Let me give you an example of how this was happening. Ignatius, who was the third bishop of Antioch and was a direct student of the Apostle John. This is what he wrote, quote, Experience proves that in this life peace and satisfaction are had, not by the listless, but by those who are fervent in God's service. And rightly so. For in their efforts to overcome themselves and to rid themselves of self-love, they rid themselves of the roots of all passion and un unrest. Notice, Jesus begins his letter to this church with a powerful list of commendations, doesn't he? He writes, look back at the text, I know, or literally, he had a full knowledge of, what? Your works. These were the things that they had purposed to do for Christ. Jesus says, I know your labor, which described the intensity of their work. These Christians were laboring. They were doing what God had called them to do to the point of utter and complete exhaustion. Jesus says, I know your patience, which affirms these Ephesians refused to be swerved from their purpose. Yes, they might have been exhausted. Yes, they might have been tired, but they demonstrated literally a steadfast endurance. Jesus said he noted their perseverance. Through it all, these Christians didn't falter. They were able to bear what was burdensome. Jesus even says, you have labored for my sake and have not become weary. Wow. These saints served faithfully and they took their calling seriously. While their culture was incredibly immoral and hostile to the followers of Christ, these believers worked hard for Jesus, regardless of the cost. Outwardly, this church was active. Hey, they were impressive. There was a genuine determination within these Ephesian believers to reach their world with the gospel of Jesus. Aside from this, Jesus commands, commends the fact that they cannot bear those who are evil. 
Those seeking to reach a corrupt culture, these saints refused to compromise morally. This church was able to influence their world without allowing their world to negatively influence them. We're told they refused to support or bear those of a bad nature, or as Jesus says, those who are evil. You see, the stakes were high, too high to allow nonsensical, sinful behavior to spread throughout Jesus's church. Christ also says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Since this church had been founded on the truth of scripture, they had good Bible teaching. We're told that they willingly tested or they made trial of those who claimed to have authority, these apostles. The church leaders in Ephesus were serious about protecting the flock, the flock God had entrusted to them. So much so that they were willing to publicly call out false teachers to be liars if they deviated from the truth of biblical doctrine. And yet, while this Ephesian church was clearly doing all of the right things, Jesus diagnoses a heart condition. He continues, look back at the text, quote, nevertheless, I can imagine as they're reading through this letter and Jesus is going through all these commendations, you know, they're kind of puffing out their chest, getting, giving high fives, like, yeah, told you we're doing it until the nevertheless, and they pause. Because it's really followed by a dun-dun-dun, the hammer, the other shoe is about to drop. Jesus continues, I have this against you. It's not good when Jesus is something against you. He says that you have left your first love. Now, in order to understand what it was these believers left, you need to first understand what Jesus means when he uses the phrase first love. In the Greek, first or protos, means first in rank, with the word agape or love being a feminine noun, signifying a deep, intimate affection. While this word agape we use for love described in the Greek a marital love. In most instances in the Bible, agape was used to refer to the covenantal love of God for mankind, by which, concerning its very design, yielded a reciprocal love back to God. To this point, you should note 12 times in the New Testament, you will find agape used in the phrase, the love of God. Contrary to what mo most Bible commentators say, I don't believe in referring to their first love, that Jesus was in some way describing or addressing a feeling that had diminished an excitement that this church now no longer possessed, a romance that had with time slowly waned. I don't believe, as one author observed, that the problem was their home had become a house. Please realize, when it comes to the Christian experience, first love or agape love was never a love I possessed for God, but rather it was a love God demonstrated towards me. As Paul would write in Romans 5, 8, but God 
demonstrates his own love, literally agape, towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how is it that we leave our first love? The answer, you leave your first love the very moment the motivation for doing anything related to the Christian life, from studying your Bible, to worship, to prayer, to service, when any of those things, the motivation for those things, for doing those things, becomes anything other than being a natural response of Jesus' love for you, you are leaving your first love. You see, the problem wasn't the fact this church no longer loved Jesus. I'm sure they did. The problem was that they had grown to see their work and their doctrinal purity as a way that they could demonstrate their love for Jesus as opposed to these things being a natural reaction of the incredible love Jesus had already demonstrated towards them. The issue Jesus is addressing is not a diminished feeling. It's not a waning passion. It's not that they're falling out of it. What Jesus is addressing is a warped motivation, which explains why. After listing all of these wonderful things the Ephesian church was doing, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. What Jesus is saying is that in spite of all of these good and wonderful things happening in your church, the one thing I've determined is missing trumps it all. Jesus is telling them that he cares more about the motivation behind their work than the work itself. Notice Jesus is crystal clear that this was not something they had accidentally lost. It was instead something they willingly left. You know, I have found that leaving your first love is actually much easier to do than one would think. And let me explain. There is a dangerous byproduct when the motivation behind your godly service shifts from being a natural response of God's love for you to the way you demonstrate your love towards him. You see, when this happens, this is what's produced, what, what results. Your work, ever so subtly, begins to supplant His grace as the basis of God's favor and your holiness. That's what makes it so dangerous. Because this church culture stressed demonstrating love for Jesus as opposed to simply enjoying Jesus' love for them, it became easy to then focus more upon the work that they did and the sacrifices that they made for Christ as opposed to the work he did and the sacrifices he made for them. Holiness had become the result of pious living and not the byproduct of God's amazing grace. The sufficiency of Jesus' work on Calvary had been replaced with the sufficiency of their own merit. In a sense, Jesus tells them that because they were exchanging the gospel of grace for legalistic moralism, they were choosing to leave their first love. Because legalism fosters 
a moral structure and creates a church culture that demands more laws to obey and liberties to forgo and things to be sacrifices and works to do as opposed to a personal relationship with Jesus based on first love to be enjoyed. Legalism is fundamentally anti-gospel. It's not against the gospel. It's seeking to replace the gospel. How dangerous it is when any church begins to herald personal achievements over sin in place of the true gospel of grace, which preaches Jesus' permanent victory over sin. In light of this heart condition, Jesus pleads with them. He says, remember from where you have fallen. He exhorts them to repent before finally admonishing them to do the first works. Obviously, the key to understanding Jesus' counsel hinges upon what he means by the first works. Let me explain how most pastors tragically apply this exhortation. You'll hear something like this. If you've left your first love, if, friend, you're not feeling it for Jesus like you once used to, then friend, brother, sister, you need to get back. I get Southern. You need to get back to doing all them things you once were doing when you first got saved. You know, the first works. Just like a married couple whose flame for one another has dimmed. The key to rectifying this stagnation is to re-stimulate the relationship. Get back to work. Reignite the passion you've lost. Christian, don't you be a lazy wife. Return to your first love and do the first works. You know how? By committing to read your Bible over the whole coming year. Or instead of listening to that Rush Limbaugh, dedicate yourself to only listening to that angel Chris Tomlin. Start rising early. You slothered. That's not even a word. <laughs> Get up early before the sun rises because that's when the Spirit hears you the most. And spend a good two hours with the Lord. Make church attendance a priority. Friend, friend, friend. The best way to fix this problem is to recreate the early days of your relationship with Jesus. If you're honest, you've probably heard something to that effect. And yet, there is a fundamental problem with this approach, especially in the context of this passage. Consider, the Ephesian church was already doing everything one could possibly do. Jesus has no problems with what they're doing. I mean, he's got this whole long list of commendations. You're killing it. You're doing great. Here's the other problem. It's a fundamental reality of the gospel that it is impossible to transform a heart through outward activity. That's the problem with telling someone to correct a heart issue with doing things. Sadly, by presenting things to do, to fix a relationship with Jesus, this perspective in actuality 
becomes guilty of the very thing Jesus is trying to address in the first place. It's not an accident that Jesus opens his letter by introducing himself as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Beyond the fact that Jesus is reminding them in this statement as to his ultimate authority over the church. It's what he means by he holds the seven stars in his right hand. This detail that he's actively walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, it's interesting because this reference, this statement, it spoke more of what? His presence as opposed to his person where he is and what he's doing. Keep in mind, the only effective way to change the heart of a person and retune that person's motivations when it comes to spiritual things is to return that person's focus, their eyes, back onto the person, the love, and the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, this church, what this church needed more than anything else, if they were to return to their first love, was a renewed awareness of and dependency on the presence and person of Jesus in their lives. Friend, what was your first work when it came to your relationship with Jesus? How did it all begin? What did you do? when you first encountered your Savior? Well, the answer's simple, isn't it? What you did, that first work, well, it began when you heard his call and you humbly came to the cross where you witnessed the incredible depths of God's love for you. And as a result, you placed your faith in his atoning work, his sacrifice. You accepted not earned his forgiveness. And then you received something you could never get on your own. You received his favor, only to then die to yourself so that Christ might live through you. With this in mind, consider Jesus' counsel. He first pleads with them to remember from where, a location, they had fallen. In order to address this heart condition, Jesus wants them. He's pleading with them. Please remember the beginning, the context for how our relationship began. Interestingly enough, it had nothing to do with them. Had nothing to do with their works, their sacrifices, or their faithfulness. It instead had everything to do with Jesus, his work, his sacrifice, and his faithfulness. You see, Jesus wants these Ephesian believers to remember that very first moment they had encountered and experienced for themselves Jesus' first love. Not their love, but His. He wants them to remember the magnitude of His love that was so large it was demonstrated to them independent of them through the amazing grace of God revealed in the fact that Jesus willingly surrendered himself to the cross. And then what happened? Jesus commends them to repent. 
You see, in order to return to the first love, in order to get back to the point where God's love for them was the preeminent thing, the motivating reality, these believers needed to reject and turn away from the notion that their works played any role at all in God's lasting favor or their personal holiness. You see, we know repentance. It's not just a turning from. Repentance describes a turning to which is why Jesus ultimately instructs them to get back to doing the first works. They could remember from where they had fallen and even repent of their legalism, but it would all be for naught if they failed to do the first works. And while that kind of sounds confusing, don't forget what the first work was, especially as it pertained to their and your relationship with Jesus. What did you originally do? To do the first works was that moment in time you came to the cross, the place of his grace, the basis of his favor, the motivator of your behavior, the origins of your holiness, the essence of God's first love. In 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10 we read, And this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, that's not the first love, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then Jesus warns this church that if they refuse to make this change, he would come quickly. In our text, Jesus tells them that he would remove their lampstand from this place. Because this departure from the power of grace fosters such a distortion of the gospel, don't overlook the reality. Jesus is telling them that he would be willing to shut down this church rather than allow it to peddle a message of legalistic moralism in place of his amazing grace. And yet, Jesus also promises what? That if this Ephesian church overcame this root of legalism by returning to the essence of the gospel message, their first love, a dependency on grace alone, they would experience what? Well, God would provide them a renewed life and fruitfulness. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Christian, friend, this evening, if you feel as if your spiritual life is fruitless, maybe the reason is that you've made the same mistake as these Ephesians and that you've left your first love. Tonight, what is Jesus saying to us? For starters, it should be, should be noted, that modeling the outward appearance of this Ephesian church is not a bad thing. Oh, that Calvary 316 would be known as a church that impacts our community. That Calvary 316 would be recognized by Jesus as a serving church. That we would possess, like the Ephesians, a heart to study the whole counsel of God and then to speak with boldness the truth to a culture that is wicked. That we would be willing to call a lie a lie that we would love what Jesus loves and that we would hate the things Jesus hates. 
Oh, that Calvary 316 would be a church distinct from, but one that also appeals to our culture. That it would be said of us that while we were a magnet for the downtrodden, we also boldly resisted the things that were evil. That in our witness, when it was all said and done, Jesus was magnified and his word grew mightily. I don't know about you, but that's the type of church that I'd like to be a part of. And yet, you should also take to heart that Jesus' criticism, this criticism, that when any aspect of your Christian experience is being motivated by anything other than his love for you, you're in danger. Understand that. If you have a work motivation, you're in danger of beginning a tailspin from grace and the power of God's grace and that blessing into the curse and barrenness of legalism. Well, Zach, how do I know if, if I'm on that slippery slope? Like, how do I know if I'm leaving my first love? Like, what's the sign, Zach? Yeah, it's simple. Anytime an aspect of your Christian life is no longer flowing from Jesus' love, one thing is certain to happen. I promise you. God will curse that work and it will no longer be enjoyable. You see, what many Christians call burnout, you know, when Bible study is getting stale, when you open the Word and it just ain't, you ain't feeling it no more, you know? Or that time in prayer has grown ritualistic. Or worship. You know, it's just, I come to church, man. And it used to be that what Andy was, like, it was like, man, it was clicking. And I got my hands up in tears and it just was, whoa. Like, I was riding high, baby. And now I'm just, you know, I just come and I just kind of, I'm like, oh, we don't clap. That's right. I just come and, and like, I'm just, I'm just singing and man, it's like, you know, I'm just, it's just, eh. uh, man, Zach, you know, I think something's wrong with Andy. I think, I think um, he's been, he's been breathing in too much dust from the hymnal. I'm not feeling it. It must be his fault. He wears that hat and it's just limiting what the Holy Spirit's doing. Like, I just can't get out. <sighs> you know, burnout. You used to be really excited. Sunday would roll around. You didn't even need the alarm clock. Boom, church. And Dunkin' Donut. You just love the morning, the experience to get here and to be around the people of God and the things of God. And yet now, that just has grown regimented. You love to serve. Man, you love to be an usher, to prepare the communion, or to, be, or to sing on the worship team, or to minister to those little rugrats. Like, wow, God's given me this opportunity to just be a part. But now you dread it. You're like, if I have to, to wipe another stinking butt, 
This is not godly. I hate these children. Zach is in the pulpit again. Are you serious? I got to hold the door open for people. It's cold outside, man. Burnout. You know what it's like. You see, I have found that when burnout happens, you know what it is? It's actually God deliberately cursing that work as a warning that you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Instead of those things being an outcropping of God's incredible love for you, those things have now become a way you're trying to demonstrate your love for God, and he will not play that game. He's a jealous God. You see, the warning is that you're leaving your first love and that the motivation's driving you, well, it's no longer his grace. Friend, if this is you, and you find yourself this evening tired and burnt out, remember Jesus and return to that place you experienced his love. Come back to the foot of the cross, the place of first love, and hold fast the banner of his grace. Seek nothing more than to do the first works by which all other Christian works flow. And what is the first work? <laughs> It's basking in and enjoying his love. As Jesus would say in John 15, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You see, that's what the cross is all about. The depths of his love, his first love. This evening, may he or she who has an ear, you've got two of them, so it works. May you hear what the Spirit is saying. You have a choice what type of relationship with Jesus you want to have. You can labor in your legalistic works, seeking to earn a blessed favor you've already been given, all the while dying a slow, unenjoyable death. Or you can choose to abide in His grace and experience life in that more abundantly fruitfulness that flows from a relationship with Jesus. Friend, this is why the cross, and more specifically, the work Jesus accomplished on the cross is so worthy of your remembrance. You see, on that cross, a great and glorious exchange occurred. As Jesus was hanging on that tree, upon his body was placed your guilt, your sin, your shame. His body was broken because he endured the full wrath of God, merited for you. Don't forget, the wages of sin is death. The reality of all that Jesus went through on that fateful Friday is that he was satisfying a debt you could never, ever, ever pay. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we're told, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And while this sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross is in and of itself an amazing truth, worthy of your remembrance, understand something. If a payment for sin was all the cross had to offer, 
the work of atonement would have been incomplete. Yes, you would have been given a fresh start with a clean slate, but your fallen nature would have remained if it was all about forgiveness. Payment for past sins would have been met, but you would have, meant, you have remained a sinner destined to transgress again. You see, the glorious reality of the cross is that while Jesus' body was sacrificed to pay for past transgressions, thereby effectively forgiving you of your rebellious actions against God, that's not all that happened on the cross. You see, it is the covering of his blood spilt on Calvary that now transforms you. It makes you into something entirely new. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, by his stripes, we are forgiven. We're given a fresh start. No, the prophet says, by his stripes, we are healed. While in his body, Jesus took upon himself your sin. It is through his blood that Jesus extended to you his right standing before God. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 9, you are now justified, how? By his blood. This is why both the body and the blood of Jesus are necessary for a full and complete work of atonement. Simply put, while Jesus' body, his broken body, was an effective sacrifice offered to deal with your past sins, his spilt blood now frees you from the payment of any future sin. Why? Because it has fundamentally changed and transformed who you are moving forward. It's why Jesus said the cup signified a new covenant. You are no longer, because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the blood spilt for you, you're no longer a sinner. You've been imparted with the righteousness of Jesus through his blood. What an exchange. What a deal. Jesus takes your sin only to then give you his righteousness. Christian, this is why the first love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross is a concept you should never depart from. You see, it hammer, hammers home two realities. You should not forget, one, by Jesus' body, his broken body, you've been forgiven. But two, through his blood, you've been changed. On Calvary, on that tree, on that Friday, you were reconciled with God. You were forgiven, but you were reconciled. You were made from an enemy to a son and a daughter of the Most High. Since both your salvation and subsequent transformation came only through a work of Jesus on the cross, how absolutely silly it is to then, to then think either could be furthered or fostered by any work of your flesh. This is why we should reject legalism, legalistic moralism. This is why we should never depart from the glorious realities of the cross. For Jesus' actions on this Good Friday not only forgave you 
for who you once were. Friend, the work of Jesus on the cross has changed you into who you now are. I hope this all explains why it is that of all things, Jesus commanded his followers. You know, Jesus didn't give a lot of commandments, but he gave one. Throughout centuries, Jesus commanded his followers to do this. Speaking of what? Of our partaking of the bread representing his body and the cup signifying his blood. To do this, why? In remembrance of me. Anytime we get together, Jesus says, when you get together, do this, partake of these things to remember me. You see, knowing how easy it would be for you and I to slide into a legalistic mindset, focused on demonstrating my love to Jesus when it's designed for me to just experience it and enjoy it and be changed by it and moved by it. His love doesn't change one way or the other. That's not the purpose. God is a giver. He wants nothing. See, Jesus knew that we would slip into this mindset. You see, this is why he wants to remind us of the central, the central truth. The truth we, as his disciples, should never forget. And that's this, that his work on the cross, that first work, the demonstration of that first love, was, is, and will always be more than enough. Do you understand that? That's why we gather to celebrate the cross, to recognize the cross. It's why in just a moment, we'll partake of communion together. If Andy and Carmen, if you could come up, if you join me, let's just pray for a minute, Father.